Money, money, money. That's what we're going to talk about today. Investing it, making it. How do you do it? How do you buy companies? And we're going to buy companies in a different way. I think that's what we're going to be talking about. Not just about buying the company, but buying the stock. And I love money. I hope you do too. We're going to be talking to Christopher Sai. Now, he's the President and Chief Investment Officer of Sai Capital Corporation right in New York City. He's got a very, very uh, big, huge background. His family was in this. His grandmother was in this. His father was one of the best known guys uh, in the mutual fund business. And now he's doing it. And in 1997, he started a global equity manager headquartered in New York City. And he's built up a manager all these investment portfolios with all the stuff that's going on today. I, I wanted to have him here. He's got his roots into finance. I mean, way, way back, as I said before, his grandmother used to trade stocks and bonds, gold and silver. I mean, wow, that's pretty cool. And to have that legacy. So right here today, uh, we've got Christopher joining on the show. So Christopher, welcome. Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. My first question whenever I talk to somebody about money is, how did you get into the business? Hi, Jeffrey. It's... uh. Great to be on your show. And I got into the business, I suppose, with baby steps, if you will. Uh, my family's had a long history uh, in finance, and uh, that was certainly helpful. Uh, my grandmother, for example, Ruth Sai, we called her Abu. Uh, she was the only woman to trade stocks, bonds, and commodities on the floor of the Shanghai Stock Exchange during World War II. And then my father, Gerald Tsai, came to the States from Shanghai uh, around 16 years old, and he went on to uh, build a very storied career on Wall Street. So having them both around and having the friends of my family around uh, was certainly uh, one of those stepping stones that led me into finance. So I bought my first stock at the age of 11, Jeffrey. What was, what was that stock? It was a reinsurance company uh, called NACRE, N-A-C-R-E. NACRE was uh, based in Stamford, Connecticut at the time, so not too far from my hometown. And uh, I didn't know that much about the company, you know, at age 11, but I did read what I could find on it. And I bought five shares of the stock. It was trading at $20. And then it went to 25. I used my gardening money. It went to 25. I made $25. I thought that was the best thing in the world. Uh, the only problem was when I went to sell it, uh, the commission back then, this was in the 80s, you know, the commissions back then were very high. It was more than my gain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had to call Bruno, my broker, and ask him to waive the commission. Uh, which he did for me. Uh, and so that's that's really how I got hooked on finance uh, from an early age and then went, yeah, went but, from there. But why, are, why are reinsurance company? I would have seen somebody as 11 years old going, hey, this is hot. I would have thought you were like Nintendo or something. You know what I mean? So would have been something related to what we see. Like, you know, I remember my, my brother-in-law when he was very young, he first bought his stock, I think about 14, 15. And 
maybe even younger, and it was Walmart because, you know, you went to Walmart. So so why a reinsurance company? I'm kind of curious about that. Well, I passed by the, the company all the time because it was along I-95 in Stanford, Connecticut. So I, I saw that, you know, I saw this name there. I, I, I was very interested in just looking at names and then going back home and researching those companies. Uh, so, you know, this was just just one of one of many. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So I want to know, why do you call your grandmother Abu? Why, what, what's, the, what's the significance of that? It's just how uh, we were always told to address her. And, uh, you know, I looked it up recently. It doesn't necessarily mean grandmother, but I suppose that many, um, many Chinese do call their grandmother Abu, but it doesn't translate uh. like that. Huh. I know in, in Hebrew, um, which I happen to speak just a few languages, that's, it means Abba. Abba is father, I think. I think that's right. So that's interesting that Abu would be like so, a term of endearment for an older woman. As she was. In, uh, Chinese, yeah, Chinese. absolutely. Uh, she was a great, great lady, and she, she taught my father so many things, and uh, he in turn taught me so many wonderful lessons. Do the, does the family get back to Shanghai? I try to travel um, every so often to China and certainly to Shanghai, but it's it's not a frequent visit. Um, mm. I was just in Singapore, um, but not in Shanghai. But Shanghai, it changes. It's unbelievable, the growth of that city. In, incredible. It's phenomenal. Incredible Those across are, Asia. Yeah. yeah, all of Asia. I mean, just whole cities springing up and... In various places um, around the around the continent, the the other piece of it is just when you go to Shanghai. For those who have never been there, it, it close your eyes if you've ever watched the if you've ever watched the cartoon The Jetsons. That's what Shanghai reminds me of at night when you see all these different shaped buildings. It looks like that uh, from the Jetsons. It's, that's that's so funny you mentioned that because exactly, and also Singapore. I, I had that thought when I was in Singapore. Either the Jetsons or. Uh, a Disneyland from the 80s, perhaps. There you go. There you go. Hey, so um, I like the fact that you were driving by and you saw a local business and then you bought it. Is that something you would give advice? I mean, not that I'm asking you for advice, but on investment philosophies. I've always kind of done that where I've bought the local stocks back in my hometown in South Dakota. You know, what publicly traded companies we have, like the like the local bank and the and the energy company. And then there's a, a signed company called Dectronics and, you know, and, and, and Raven Industries, which makes all the Thanksgiving um, Macy's Day uh, balloons and makes other kinds of balloons and other products. But is that something you'd advocate? It's it's a large part of it. It's not it's not the whole piece of the puzzle. But Peter Lynch had it right when he says you got to you got to stick to what you know. Uh, you know, that goes back to the whole idea of circle of confidence that Warren Buffett uh, has, has spoken about at length. And when you're involved with a particular brand or you use a service or a certain product, um, you have an edge in, in terms of the understanding of that product. So that's where it starts, certainly. Um, and from there, of course, you've got to dive in and do the research, but it's a great place to find some ideas. So tell, talk to me about Psy Capital Corporation. I founded Psy Capital back in 1997. So we're a registered investment advisor based in New York City. And um, our investment philosophy from the get-go has been to find high-quality growth companies that we could buy at discounts to their intrinsic worth. And 
we look for businesses that we can hold over the long term. And so businesses that we can hold all over the long term and can continue to grow uh, need to have certain characteristics. For example, they need to have a, a strong economic moat, a competitive advantage. Um, they need to have a long runway of growth and a, a large uh, total addressable market. So we're looking for all of these types of criteria in companies we invest in. And we do that for high net worth individuals, individuals that are not high net worth, um, corporations, trusts, foundations, et cetera. So we're really an investment advisor. Yeah, I was going to say, are you buying them for them and, and then managing them? Or then are you just buying them and they take care of managing them? No, we, we are the investment manager. So if a client comes to us and says, I have you know, X amount of dollars that, we, that you know, I'd like to invest for myself or for my family or set up an account for my children, um, can you manage this for us? And then we'll look at the profile of the client to make sure that we're on the same page. Uh, we're not short-term investors. We're long-term investors. So if somebody were to say, you know, what can you make for us in six months? That's not going to be the right fit. But um, over the long term, there's a very high correlation between how a company grows its business and the growth of the stock price. So we think long-term. So, but at the same time, let's say you started in 1997, what do you define as long-term? The best definition for us uh, in terms of um, a position that we want to hold would be indefinitely. <laughs> so obviously the world changes very quickly and particularly quickly today with all of the technology and disruption. But we go into investments with the assumption that this is a company that we want to own forever. And um, if we can't think in those terms, we don't think about buying the company. But realistically, um, probably five to 10 years is, is, is generally the time frame in which uh, most investments will fall because things do wind up changing. Yeah. Let me take a quick break, and then I want to come back and ask you about a couple of things that you, you mentioned, and then the types of businesses that you find to be interesting and, and how they relate to the clients, or, to, or is that more of your own philosophy? So listen, folks, uh, talking about businesses, have you ever thought about owning a franchise? Then give the folks at Liberty Tax Service a call. I love the folks at Liberty, as you well know. With 20 years in the business of taxes and uh, franchising, uh, and finance, quite frankly, they can help you become your own boss and show you why taxes make a great business. There's a, here's a business that's long-term because taxes aren't going away. Um, we're just talking about Christopher. He likes things that are long-term. Not that he likes Liberty, but maybe he does. I don't know. We'll find out. Check them out at libertytaxfranchise.com. So um, I, I, when you say things that are long-term, I got the sense that you like things that are renewable or used over and over or that people need all the time. Is that correct? We prefer companies that um, consumers will purchase day in and day out. So a great example would be um, the Gillette razor blade or a razor blade in general. So we owned, we owned Gillette uh, in, in the past. Yeah, every day you wake up, you got to shave, or if not one day, the next day. So we like businesses like that. So when you say you own Gillette, you owned Gillette. We owned the shares in Gillette. So we, we think about uh, owning shares as owning uh, a partial interest in the business, whether you own 100% of a company or you own 0.1% of a company, the economics relate the same way. 
we think about intrinsic value per share. That, which which really is kind of cool. So talk to me. Uh, you mentioned economic moat. I love that term. Tell me more about that. There, there are not a lot of businesses that um, have the armor around them to protect them from competition. Mm-hmm. So if you think about um, a business where it's very difficult for a competitor to make um, inroads into, into a particular area, uh, that's the economic moat that surrounds uh, a business. So um, one of the one of the moat uh, one of the best forms of a moat is scale. So if you think about a company like Mastercard and Visa, um, which we've owned for years, um, they are so large at this point and so entrenched within the payment system that it's very very difficult for a new competitor to. Um, to make headways into their business, at least to any meaningful extent. And if it happened, it would happen slowly so that when you own the stock, you won't wake up one night and just see it down 20%. It's going to be something that as as a manager, one has time to adjust to. So so they have an inherent um, advantage over a, a new competitor coming in. So therefore, it's got a moat. You got to cross that moat, and if you have to cross the moat, you're going to lose a lot of people in the process. <laughs> it's a great way to think about it. Exactly. <laughs> you're storming the big castle of a mess. Well, I mean, look at let's let's take Apple Pay for instance. It hasn't. There, there's a there's a business that's really kind of gone up, although it uses a backbone of, uh, I believe, um, Mastercard. I don't know uh, one of the two. I think I, I, absolutely. So they decided to partner. And um, they, they still uh, needed the, the dominant player to, uh, to even make any sort of headway into the payments uh, area. So what would be the other areas like that? I, to me, it would be infrastructure plays like, you know, power would be one of those or, or uh, maybe, maybe it's water or power utilities. That, that would be another area I would think it'd be very difficult for new players to get into and have scale. Yeah. So, in terms of um, in terms of infrastructure or or businesses that relate to infrastructure, there there's um, there's an area in that called industrial gases, and the industrial gas business is is a very intensive business in terms of capital. You need a lot of capital, and there are only a few players in that area. Uh, so these players really operate. Um, uh, in, in a nice environment where uh, there's there's little competition in that sense. Mm-hmm. So so where do you see the hot areas? I mean I mean do you consider them hot? I mean you, again you're looking at the long term. Yeah. So do you even think of it like that, or do you just think of it as not hot, meaning you know popular or big or huge, but steady? Well, the 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 you know. Hot. The term hot is great in in certain areas, particularly in life, but not so much in the investing world because um, anything that's hot or trendy um, tends to either be also a fad or it tends to already be very expensive just because of the visibility associated with it. 
So we think more in terms of looking for just high quality businesses that are growing and they tend to be non-sexy. So going back to when I was 11 years old and looking at a reinsurance company, as you pointed out, not the sexiest kind of business, but if you look at the economics, uh, they were pretty compelling. So I'm looking for great economics and whether one considers that a hot business or not, it's, it's irrelevant to the decision. So how do you guys go about making the choices that you do? Do you have like an investment committee? I mean, you're the chief investment officer. Are you the one that does that? Or, or I mean, how do you, I'm kind of curious how you go about which ones you pick. I am the chief investment officer and, and have been. So my clients like that consistency, which they often don't get other places. Um, and the research is all done internally. And I also have a great advisory committee with a former gentleman who used to work for George Soros on the committee. I've got um, a wonderful network of, of, of business people that I can always bounce ideas off of, not just uh, people who invest on the long side, but people who think uh, about you know, what are the risks on the downside. They're short sellers. They're looking for opportunities to make money in stocks that go down. So I like to bounce ideas off of uh, many different people um, that I've, I've built a network around. But ultimately, it comes down to doing the research internally and then verifying that uh, through multiple sources. So what do you look for when you're looking for a client? I practice t uh, TM, which is Transcendental Meditation, uh, twice a day. It's a wonderful um, wonderful way to just unwind and also to gain clarity and gain quiet. Uh, I'm also a huge uh, fan of jogging. I try to jog every day if I can. Great way to unwind and clear the head. No, I, I, get, I must have misstated my question. What do you look for in a client? I'm sorry, in a client. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's like, I, although those would be great things for a client, right? I mean, <laughs> but when, you, when you're looking for someone with a client, you're just looking for a wallet or you're looking for you know, the, the money or do you have to like them first? What? Charlie Munger once said, choose your clients as you would your friends. And I think he had it so right. Uh, and what he's getting at there is that uh, you want a long-term relationship with the client. That's number one. But also importantly, uh, you want a similar thought set in terms of when it comes to investing an, an outlook. We, we cannot be successful with somebody who comes to us and says, what will you make for us in six months? It's just not the way we think about the world. And it's not the way to compound wealth over time. The way you really make wealth, Jeffrey, Jeffrey is to, to do the work up front, find a great opportunity, buy it at a discount, and hold it. And let the growth of the business compound for you in a tax-deferred manner over a long period of time. That's how real wealth is created. So we're looking for clients that understand that. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for clients who also are aligned with our philosophy that it's not just about making money. It's also and equally about preserving capital. 
So do, do you think people would be surprised in this country to know the amount of wealth that's really out there? I think the latest figure was 0.1% of the top controls, uh, 99% of, of uh, the bottom population. And that's a staggering number. And I think it's becoming um, more public, but certainly surprising to everybody who hears that number, including myself. But it, but it, it, what's surprising to me, though, is wherever I look, especially in New York, you, know, you, you live in the New York area, I do as well, is just, you know, when you look at prices of things, I'm out in San Francisco today, you know, I just saw a house here in, I think it was Palo Alto or, or nearby, that went for like $800,000 over the selling price. You know, a small little bungalow house, which I don't even know what the original asking price, I'm going to assume it's about 1.6 mil or something like that, but it, just a small house, you know, a couple thousand square feet, and it went for that kind of money over, and it just surprises me sometimes that of the people who can afford to do what they do and the wealth that's really out there, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering, and there's also a lot of borrowed money, and that contributes to these um, these these mini bubbles, if you will, in certain pockets of the world, whether it's in real estate or in art, because interest rates are so low. So people feel more of a desire to borrow money and try to earn a spread above that cost of capital. You think that's a good idea to borrow to invest? It's a terrible idea. Uh, One one of our investment uh, tenants is not to borrow money. Mm-hmm. Uh, gets you in trouble in many ways, and uh, particularly in down markets when one can be forced to sell because of borrowed capital, whereas that is exactly the type of opportunity one should be using to buy, not sell. Yeah, it doesn't give you the opportunities to, to maneuver, that's for sure, because you're beholden to somebody else. If you If you have liquidity, if you have the cash, if you have the wealth, to be able to do the things you want to do, that gives you a lot more power. That's without question. We like to keep cash on the side. We like cash because it's that firepower for those rare opportunities, those market sell-offs that um, that can lead to wonderful investment opportunities. Yeah. What would be the the mix that you would have? It depends. What's your mix? It depends. Yeah, on what's, the, your, what's your mix? What's your mix? What's your mix <laughs> of your portfolio? It depends on on the environment. Certainly. Um, if prices are very high and we can't find businesses to buy, we might have more cash than if uh, the market is going through a major sell-off. Mm-hmm. So we like market sell-offs because they uh, provide opportunity not only to buy at discounts, but um, there are more simply more opportunities available because the, the bathwater gets thrown out. What... Um what, who is your primary client? I, I would imagine with your background, you're serving um, a great number of Asian clients as well. Our client base is really a mix. And um, we have um, a disproportionate share of women as investors. Uh, really? Yes, absolutely. Uh, particularly those that have gone through a divorce or have been recently separated, you know, often is the case even even today that the men in the household 
call the financial shots. It's just the way it still is, though. It's changing. Not in my house. I don't know about yours. But, but when, when one is going through a, a divorce or a separation, um, women mm-hmm. often feel um, very unsettled. And um, so many of our clients um, are, are women. And we have clients of varying ages, uh, men and women. We have clients as, as young as their teens, and we have clients as old as in their 80s. Hmm. I'm curious about the women that are finding you. Is that mostly word of mouth? Well, New York is a wonderful city in which um, there, there's so many uh, investors here and so many people who need help, uh, like, like, like in, in any other major city. And the opportunity to come across people in highly densely populated areas is just, it's just greater. So they're finding me either through um, my involvement in different organizations in New York City or, um, or, or through media coverage. You know, they might mm-hmm. read an article in Barron's or they might uh, listen to a show on Fox Business. I'm, I'm not sure, but people are pretty savvy these days at finding out uh, what might be good, good fit for that. Yeah, I just find it interesting that divorced women with wealth then all of a sudden are, are, are gravitating that way, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I just think it's cool. Um, one, I, I'm sorry they're in that situation, but maybe the, you, you never know what to say to somebody who has a divorce sometimes. I've been married for 30-some years, so uh, I'm, I know me, I wouldn't be married to me. So And uh, so I'm very lucky. And... Um, but if I were in that situation, I don't know. Do you tell people congratulations or you tell them condolences? I'm not sure. Sometimes both. Yeah. Some, sometimes both. I mean, every situation is obviously so different. Yeah. So how do you find most of your clients? Well, like I said, most, most of my uh, clients um, find, find, find us through, uh, uh, they might read, read about what we're doing. But many of my clients do come through referrals. So referrals have been a wonderful source of, of, um, of business in the, uh, since, since 15 years now. Yeah. What's, the big, what's been the biggest mistake that you've ever made in terms of the investment side of the business? Where you went, you went and said, I'm never going to do that again. Selling too early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> it's much more difficult, Jeffrey, to know when to sell than it is to know when to buy. Because if a company does very well and is up three times, four times, five times over a long period of time, whether you pay 20 for the stock or 22 a share doesn't really matter that much. It will affect your rate of return, but you still make a lot of money. But when it comes to selling, you might sell a stock after you've doubled your money on it, but then it could go on to make another five or 10 times. So knowing when to sell is much more difficult. And we look at a combination of fundamentals and technicals to understand if it is time to even think about selling. So let me talk about those two briefly. Fundamentals are the earnings, the return on equity, the return on capital, the unit economics of a business. Um, 
And the technicals is the chart, the long-term chart we look at. You know, how has the stock performed over a long period of time? And if there's a technical breakdown in the chart, that is often a precursor to fundamental changes. So we pay attention to the charts as well as the fundamentals, though ultimately the decisions have to be made on fundamentals. Yeah, but you're following some type of formula typically, right? We're, for, we're following our own, our own formula, if you will. It's, it's, yeah. uh, and, it, and the formula is a, 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 bit, uh, a bit flexible depending on the different situations. You know, one of the thing, one of the things I do, Christopher, is uh, you know I I like to buy stocks that I know, like you mentioned earlier. So I tend to get into knowing about the company. I go, well, this is a good buy. This is a good investment. If nothing else, I'm doing the right thing because I like it and, and that side of it. But when I typically those stocks will, will actually double, triple, or quadruple. I'm, I've been lucky that way. But knowing the kind of companies and knowing the leadership of the companies that helps a lot. And I know the leadership of the company as well. That really helps me. Um, and when I buy that, when I usually buy that stock and I put something in, let's just use an arbitrary figure, but let's just say it's $10,000. And then when it doubles, I always take up my initial 10000 and move that somewhere else. And now I'm playing on my borrowed money or my, not borrowed money, but my earned money. Is that a good, is that a good move? Everybody has a different way of approaching investing. And I just know what works for us. And one, one of the lessons I learned very early on in life is what didn't work for me. And so <laughs> right. my, my late father uh, made a, 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 a quite a name for himself as, uh, as, as uh, the founder of Manhattan Fund, which is uh, probably today still the most successful mutual fund offering in American history in, in present value in, in, you know, in present value terms. Uh, but he was a momentum trader. He bought and sold every day, often multiple times every day. And he was very good at getting to the exit uh, when there was a fire before everybody else did, or at least anticipating that fire. I can't invest like that. Um, I'm much more successful in thinking long-term and looking at the underlying business fundamentals and where those fundamentals are going. And it's worked very well for us all, uh, over almost 20 years now. So as we close out here, what, what piece of advice would you give somebody looking to invest? If you don't think about owning a company for at least five years, you shouldn't own it. And when I talk about a company, I'm referring to a stock as well. A stock is yep. just uh, a fraction ownership of a piece of a business. So think about stocks as businesses, not as piece, uh, pieces of paper to be traded and think long term. That's how you get an edge. Well, Christopher, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being a part of All Business with Jeffrey Azit right here on C-Suite Radio. Jeffrey, it's great to have been on your show. Thanks so much. Welcome to C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network the world's most trusted network of C-suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about the things I learned. I learned a, a new term that I have never heard before, 
I should have, but, uh, but uh, you know, old dogs, new tricks. Economic moat. Economic moat. So what can you do to create a moat around your business? Now, I, I'm more about forward than defense. I'm more about offense almost all the time because if you're moving, they can't. If you're moving fast enough, they can't catch up to you. But if you're going to build a castle, we well, got to put a moat around it. And you got to you want to make it difficult for people to try to attack the castle, right? So what's your economic moat? I thought that was a really good term. Really like that. I also like uh, long, you know, long-term addressable markets. Love that where you've got customers into the yin yang, so to speak. That is not an that is not a financial term. Okay, so that's what I learned. I thought that was pretty good. Um, and then I learned, um, and it was a reminder that when you're buying the company, you're buying the stock, you're buying the company. You're an owner. You're an owner. So you know, go buy some Walmart and act like a real rich guy. There you go. Or whoever you want to buy. That's what I learned right here on all business with Jeffrey Hazel. Don't forget, tell your friends, um, tell your enemies. Because uh, I want everybody listening to this show. And uh, all they got to do is tune into us right here on C-Suite Radio or wherever you download your podcast from. This has been Jeff Hazlett right here on All Business with C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.